Welcome to the Hoban Minute, a podcast that will shift your perspective on the business, politics, and culture of the hemp and marijuana industries. I'm your host, Xavier Jaye. It's 420 somewhere, so let's dive in. Happy New Year's and welcome to another episode of the Hoban Minute. I'm your host, Xavier, and I'm joined today, as always, by Mr. Bob Hoban. How are you today, Bob? Uh, hey, now, I'm doing great. It's good to be here, and Happy New Year to you as well, my friend. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of good things ahead of us. In, uh, yes. 2024? I believe it's a four at the end of the year now, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm excited to announce that we're going to be recording our 2024 predictions episode today where we'll be diving into you know, some of the major topics that have been swirling around the cannabis industry and uh, maybe putting a little bit of our insight and analysis onto those topics. Um, and I'm excited to announce that we are pleased to be joined today by Tom Howard, cannabis industry lawyer and longtime professional in the space. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, thrilled that 2023 is behind us. And um, it was good, though. It was a good year. Uh, and so I think 2024 is going to be uh, transformational, as transformational as yes. 2000. And it, we shouldn't give it to 2018 because they shut down the government and Trump signed it like before Christmas. And I don't think anybody read it. It was just part of the omnibus farm bill then. But I think we'll get a new farm bill or something will happen in this year. Yeah. It'll be fascinating. Yep. The election cycle is certainly going to bring, I think, some spotlights on the industry, and we'll definitely get into that um, when we discuss some of our predictions. Um, but Tom, why don't you go ahead and introduce you know, yourself to listeners, let us know a little bit about yourself, kind of what your experience is in the space, um, and where you're located. Sure, man. All right. So uh, back, in, I got into the space, I guess, in, in 10, but it was not right for me at the time. I was a, a recent law grad out of Illinois. And I did like a, a book on, on the, what I thought was the rampant illegality of the federal cannabis laws. And, and 14 years later, it's even more rampant, uh, unless they move it to Schedule 3, and then I think at least has a rational basis. Uh, and so I became an activist, and I sold some books, and that's how I met my co-host on Cannabis Legalization News on YouTube. If you check that out, uh, his name's Miggy. Uh, we do a pretty fun, successful podcast. We'll have Bob on here in about a month. And um, then I became a bank lawyer and a financial litigator uh, as I had, I took my series seven and 66 and they're like October 27th of 2008. It was the worst possible timing, at least in my lifetime to become a stockbroker after getting out of law school. Uh, so like my CFA dreams didn't really pan out. And um then I was a financial litigator and then Illinois legalized. And so I saw my opportunity and I, I, I won some dispensaries. I won some craft grows. I got into it and I started winning in whatever state was having around. Uh, and so this year we won. In, uh, and then I, I don't really say that I win when I win in New Jersey. It's, it's easy to get a license there. You know, like you just do what they say to do and they'll give it to you. Same with New Mexico or like Michigan. Um, but you know, in, in Illinois, you had to like do this Kabuki theater and then like tell people that you'd have to sue because it's an 800 page phone book of an application that they're going to grade to see who's the best and, and they're going to screw that up. And they did. Um, and so then, you know, this year it was lotteries that we won in Missouri, Illinois. We'll see about Maryland, but um, it, it's been a it's been crazy being in this industry just for like a few years, you know, professionally. 
seeing how much it changes. And so like the stuff that worked three years ago, good luck with that. Well, it definitely beats, uh, beats the, uh, the financial industry, uh, outside of cannabis. So, uh, so we're, we're glad to have you and we're glad to have you this afternoon as well. Well, thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be here. Can't wait to have you on the podcast over at Cannabis Legalization News. Uh, it'll, it'll be some good watching. Right on. So that'll be a good little crossover there. Um, and so for today, for this episode, you know, I think the best way to approach this, we just kind of have general conversation um, about, you know, predictions, focusing on specific topics. And so I thought we could focus on, you know, federal, some state level, marijuana, hemp, of course. Um, but first, I wanted to cover, you know, as we tend to do on these on these episodes, just uh, some recent news, um, some news topics that popped over the last two weeks at the end of the year last year that maybe have slipped under radars or maybe are, you know, at the top of headlines. Um, and so the first one there is uh, the DEA actually issued a warning um, to the state of Georgia who is looking to implement their medical marijuana program through their pharmacy system. Um, turns out, of course, pharmacies are DEA licensed entities, and the DEA said, hey, this is a controlled substance. We will not allow our licensed entities to distribute this product. Um, I thought that was pretty ironic, given the DEA's stance and position on some of the hemp-derived cannabinoids, as we've discussed on the podcast frequently. Um, but it was just interesting seeing that the DEA kind of still flex their muscles a little bit when it comes to, um, you know, a state viable marijuana program. So I'm wondering if you, you know, either of you have any insight on, on that or why the DEA maybe decided that this was a point to, you know, again, flex their muscles a little bit. Uh, let me, let me take a quick, quick stab at this. I mean, it, it seems a bit random for the DEA to come out on this particular topic um, in Georgia of all places, but uh, we are talking about the South, the Southern United States. So of course, you know, culture and the perspectives of cannabis is different uh, in, in that, uh, that part of the country. Uh, we are talking about Georgia in particular, which does have a narrow program. And as you point out, it's a program that is, uh, designed to be more, I don't want to say pharmaceutical in nature, but the distribution system, of course, uh, right. as you point out, goes through less there. of the dispensary model, but, but it's, it's a common theme, you know, whether it's a pharmacist or a doctor or, uh, some sort of FDA or DEA registrant in another sector, right. If you're doing something and you're going to do it in cannabis, well, that could jeopardize your licensure, professional registration, whatever it might be, in another field. So uh, on, on one hand, it feels like uh, sort of dip, typical DEA uh, uh, saber rattling with, with a little southern twist. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, you know, it is something that those professionals and those business owners need to, need to be closely guarded about. Yeah, I don't know. What if the DEA felt like they were being front run by uh, the Georgia pharmacies going like, hey, we haven't come out with the, the schedule three rule yet to determine how you're actually supposed to sell this in a pharmacy. Back off. We'll do a press release. We'll call it a, uh, you know, an interim proposed rule in, in the coming months. And so like quit stealing our thunder. But uh, the other thing, Georgia could maybe push back and say, fine, only uh, Delta 9 THC compliant hemp can be sold through these pharmacies, which, you know, again, that but then it's bad. an agricultural commodity. And so like it, it would be treated like it's Tylenol and maybe not even it's Tylenol. Like it's, uh, you know, it's orange juice is treated as, as they're trying to sell that out of um, uh, pharmacies. When I think of a pharmacy, I don't think of like, that's all they do. And like the soda jerk back in the day, uh, uh, I think now it's more along the lines of a CVS or a Walgreens or even a grocery store right. pharmacy. But 
convenience store. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, and, and the thought of selling it in a in a pharmacy versus, for example, it brings me back to thinking about the early discussion about you know one of the first countries in the world to legalize cannabis, Uruguay. They were going to use their pharmacies for distribution, but there was the the notion that you wouldn't just go buy flour at this pharmacy. You would actually go in and say, look, I, I need this and I need to prepare this way. And that they would compound it on site and maybe not before your yeah. eyes, but you know, that's certainly not going on here. They're, they're just selling this compound in a store under a state specific license. And it just so happens to, to overlap with, with certain federal licenses and registrations that, um, that come into to, to perspective just because of the federal illegality. But no, I, I think you, you make a good point there, Tom, but I just don't know if it does the DEA care about optics Does the DEA care to be perceived as the driver of the discussion uh, versus, you know, in other Maybe. words, don't get ahead of us. I don't know. What do you, what do they, they care about that from a public relations standpoint or is it a control thing? I don't know. I, I think it's probably a control thing. Cause I don't know one DEA agent who is a friend or like even an acquaintance. And uh, if they're listening, hey, you could reach me over at CannabisIndustryLawyer.com. But, um, you know, why they would say that and then allow the THCA flower issue to just kind of like blaze throughout the United States is is perplexing to me. It's like, wait, uh, you know, going back to the Ogden memo and the Cole memos, I realized the Trump administration, when they had attorney general sessions, like, you know, revoke those. But they, they were all about not having any type of diversion and ensuring that it is going to be in compliance with state law. And now you've entrusted that to pharmacists. And that's too much for the federal government. I mean, like, you're not going to shut down other stuff, but that, that you're going to shut down. And it's, it's a low THC program. I mean, it's almost as bad as Texas's. And I wonder if it's because they are DEA registered entities that the DEA just has kind of that existing channel to them, right? Where, you know, you brought up the good example of THCA flower. I mean, I don't think the DEA even knows where to start to look when it comes to THCA flower, right? Um, versus here. North Carolina. <laughs> versus here, they have the ability to actually go after uh, a licensed entity that they know, you know, contact information for. And they could say, hey, you know, you, you report to us for other things and we're going to take away your ability to do that business. Um, so I don't know. It might be a little, I think it's a little bit more of the control thing. But I think it is an interesting perspective, the timing with the rescheduling, especially with the DEA um, today, just confirming, reaffirming, letting us all know what we already knew that they were going to be um, taking the HHS recommendation seriously and going to be reviewing whether or not marijuana should be rescheduled this year. Which, which is an interesting thing and, and certainly something uh, you know, we could dive headlong into. But what I find interesting on, the, on that topic is not so much that the DEA is going to do their job, frankly, and consider this, but uh, that there was also a, a letter that came out from um, former U.S. attorneys and former attorneys general across the country that uniformly sta- stated that this should not be rescheduled. And it goes to this, this idea of uh, who's the, the guy from that, that sm- smart, smart uh, Kevin. Oh, Sam. Kevin. Sam. Uh, Project uh, yeah, yeah. Sam. Yeah. Yeah, S-A-M. Yeah. Smart. Yeah, no, it's Sam. Sam smart approaches yeah. to marijuana. The most ironically named nonprofit <laughs> in the campus space. Well yeah. said. But, you know, Kevin, Kevin Sabat comes out and he says, he says, look, uh, there's no evidence to su- to support the, this rescheduling. What? 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 
What? What about the HHS? There's thousands upon thousands of articles, including yeah, about the, the HHS. Is responsible yes. for this? <laughs> the, the HHS's redacted letter was painful when it pointed to Section 811 of the Controlled Substances Act and said, "These eight elements we went over, and each one of them support." And then FDA was also lumped into that too. So I'm really hopeful that once DAA and like maybe that gets back to like, you know, them saying, hey, stop this with the pharmacy stuff. We got something for you. You know, don't trump us here yet. And um, maybe there's going to be a fairly comprehensive rule that will define medical marijuana for the or medical cannabis for the first time as a matter of law in our country. And it'll be cannabis with more than 0.3 percent THC. And then it'll find it as total THC. And then there'll be one set of rules if you want to sell that product. Because the THCA flower, I'm not going to say it's not hemp. It is, unless you light it on fire. But uh, you don't have the types of protections that you have, like if you're growing it in a highly regulated medical marijuana state, so that you know that it's tested after it's harvested, not 30 days before harvest, but uh, also what heavy metals are in it, what pesticides were used, so that people can use it medicinally. Yeah. And I think we'll definitely get into uh, a little more on, on the hemp side and how, you know, possibly we could see some reconciliation of regulatory frameworks here. Um, but let's, before we get too far into the prediction piece, one more interesting piece of news I did want to bring up is just that the California AG, um, of course, Newsom, I don't know, I think it was a bill he passed, right? That was saying, hey, we're going to allow our licensed dispensaries to send cannabis interstate to other states that, you know, are within this essentially a Western compact, right? Folks that, that have aligned uh, cannabis regulations, aligned licensing schemes, Oregon, Washington, and again, kind of similar with Western states. Um, and the AG, the, the California AG came out and actually issued a letter of opinion stating that he didn't think that that would be a good idea, right? That the interstate commerce would indeed violate um, federal law. And so um, I just thought it was interesting. I know a lot of folks were excited when, when Newsom passed that bill and thought that it was going to, you know, kind of herald the beginning of truly a national cannabis industry. Um, I was, you know, I, th- I think it was a good step in the right direction, but I'm not really surprised that this is where we landed. Um, but it seems like some people were, I don't know. I don't know. You're curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, look, the interstate commerce aspect of that California bill was really, really interesting to me. I thought uh, that what we were going to see, perhaps if, if Joe Biden didn't win the election, in other words, a Democrat uh, win the White House uh, last time around, I think you would have seen the state of California do a deal under that law or something uh, akin to that with, for example, another blue state, call it New Jersey. And they would have uh, had a shipment going from one to the other. I don't know how you get it from one place to the other, but that, pl- that, that, that vehicle, that plane, that, that, that train would have been wrapped in, in marijuana leaf uh, uh, markings so that it was seized. So it could tee up a case at the federal level that challenged the, you know, the federal government's purview over this. And I'm not an interstate commerce expert by any stretch of the imagination, but we've got this Gonzalez versus Rage case, which is sort of the, the big case that came out years ago in the strictly criminal law context, um, uh, you know, from that perspective of analysis. And I do think that, I've said this before, that conservative judges tend to be textualists, and I think textualists are a lot more friendly to the cannabis industry, even if they're not friendly as an affirmative matter. Uh, and I, this, this case could, uh, that case 
could come out in favor of the states and frankly should come out in favor of the states with when you mix policy into the legal. But but Tom, I don't, I don't know if, if you've got much, much more light to shed on that, because uh, like I said, interstate commerce and uh, those provisions of our Constitution are not exactly where I spend most of my time. Oh, well, um, if you did. You'd be very scared. So Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution entrusts Congress with the, the full power of the Commerce Clause, which has just been getting bigger and bigger, so much so that in our most recent video over at Campus Legalization News, should be dropping tomorrow or the next day. Uh, we go over the three different Uniform Controlled Substances Acts that have been passed at a state level since 1970, and each revision from like 1970 to 1990, 1994, entrusts more and more power to the federal government and take less and less away of the state's rights. So like, that's why you're gonna have all these automatic trigger laws after it's schedule three, because it's respecting that supreme law of the land, Congress's ability to regulate interstate commerce. And so with uh, Gonzalez was rage case back about 19 years ago now in 05, uh, handed down of course in June when they get out of their um, you know, session. And, and so that was, it was, it was an, uh, it was Wickard v. Filburn on steroids. And so Wickard v. Filburn was the constitutional case that says like growing wheat still has an enough of impact on the interstate commerce markets so that federal government can regulate your garden's wheat consumption. And that was like in the 40s, it was like 80 years ago. And so like it was growing the rage plant for her medicine solely in California, completely intrastate still impacted interstate commerce of this, what Scalia called a fungible commodity. And so uh, that is, uh, the, the federal government's ability to regulate interstate commerce is huge, vast. And so like with the standing Akimbo case from back in 21, where Thomas, like there was, they didn't take the case and he still said, yeah, but this, you know, and, which was hilarious. Like when was the last time you ever heard of the Supreme Court not taking a case, but one of the judges going, but I want to make a statement about this case, even though we're not taking it. And, and yeah, a non-opinion opinion, where he says like, no, we don't need this. This is incoherent. Like what you guys are doing is incoherent. Uh, and so that's why like, I think that schedule one cannabis is unconstitutional and you should then entrust more power to the states, unless there's a rational basis to regulate the interstate commerce of weed and there is, and they're going to call it Schedule Three medical cannabis. I'm not sure if that's going to become a new term of art or not. Like we'll find out uh, in this rulemaking until we get a public comment period to try to push the rules. I'm really interested to know who in DEA or in DOJ, because that or who drafts the the rulemaking process on the Hill to begin with. Uh, that's where this is all going down. And you know they don't know f about cannabis. Um. Well, no, I think this is a good opportunity to transition right into kind of more prediction-focused conversation. I mean, we're already doing that. Um, so using the, these headlines to kind of drive that conversation, I think it makes sense. And so we're on the topic of rescheduling. Um, as I said, the DEA today just reaffirmed that they will be uh, reviewing the HHS recommendation. Um, what do you guys think? Where's that fall? Are we getting Schedule 3? Well, listen, I, I've, I've said this before. From a political perspective, um, this presidential election is going to be a dogfight. There's no question about that. It's going to be neck and neck, whoever the candidates are. Um, although, uh, and that that goes for the Democrats too, because there's no no guarantee that 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 Biden is there at the end of the day for health reasons or otherwise. Um, so, the Democrats are going to need all the help they can get, and every little piece matters. Every little policy victory matters. Um, and here we are in 2024 talking about uh, cannabis, marijuana policy, 
as a uh, federal issue that politicians have to, to pay attention to. That's a pretty significant uh, issue in and of itself. That change, I, I've said this before, but I remember being at the debate when Mitt Romney was here at the University of Denver years ago. And after the, the debate between uh, he and, and, and Obama, he was asked a question by someone on the cannabis staff, cannabis, the, the former Denver Post version of, of our cannabis news, uh, uh, edited by, uh, by Ricardo Baca at the time. They asked the question, what are you going to do about cannabis policy? And, and Romney looks at the guy with a with a, his jaw dropped. Says, "Are you going to ask me something real or not? Because if not, I'm moving on." That's not a quote, by the way, but that's effectively what happened. The point being is, politicians, particularly at that level, did not have to pay attention to this issue. They could be flippant about it. They could disregard it. They could ignore it. That's not the case today. So, with that said, I believe that rescheduling is so important even though people don't fully understand it, and we don't understand the full implications of it till it happens, uh, I think it's so important for the Democrats to get votes in this upcoming election that it's going to happen, and I believe the White House will drive that to the finish line. Uh, because remember, the White House is going to dictate the timeline and the timetable and wh what and how the DEA treats this. Uh, there's just no question about that. So at the end of the day, that's what I believe is going to happen. I believe it gives additional votes to, to, to those voting for, for Biden in this upcoming election. And I, I think it's going to happen. Um, but does that mean that it's going to be effective? I mean, Tom, do you think it's going to happen? And more importantly, is it going to be effective? Uh, this is exactly how I think it's going to play out because I've, I've, I've looked at this. And so um, what happens when you create a new rule is the, everything's at play even like judicial review after the rule becomes effective. And so you get telegraphed that this rule is going to be published in a federal register, the interim rule. And, and you usually know that about six, eight weeks out. And then there's a public comment period of 30, 60 days. And so, and then you'll get the final rule and then it becomes effective 30 days after it's published in the federal register. You can play this out politically. Because, okay, they, DEA beats on its chest like it's an 800-pound gorilla. It's used to cutting down plants and, and arresting people and saying, we're in charge. That's not what it says in the Controlled Substances Act. It says the Attorney General. And so the Attorney General's in charge, and he was directed by the president. And he liked to keep his job, and so would the president, by the way. And so I'm of the opinion that the DEA will reschedule, or whomever is in charge will be fired. And they can resign and protest and go get a job at Sam, <laughs> you know, with with Sabat, <laughs> and uh, and that's fine. But uh, I, you know, if they if they care about their jobs and the future of America, they'll they'll allow it to be rescheduled. And then you're going to see like, well, what's going to happen if it doesn't? Well, we're going to still keep the same thing. You know what the same thing is? The same thing is this THCA loophole, which means that like the way that the farm bill is written. Illegally grown weed can become hemp without a test. You can do a post-harvest test for a COA that says that it's the Delta 9 compliant. You can falsify that. You can pass it off. And, and then that stuff didn't have to go through any of the other testing that I mean, because there's no medical property for it right now. It's Schedule 1. Now, if we turn this into a medical property, it's Schedule 3. Now it's supposed to be a medicine to the best we can make it. And I hope that they bypass the traditional CVSs and pharmacies to create a federal standard of what it means to make the plant and then what it means to sell the plant. Because that would allow interstate commerce 
when the, the railroads are a good example, all the railroads are a standardized size so that they can fit their tracks on that rail. They don't have all, I mean, and also software languages are, are a good one as well because there's so many, but then they gravitate to a few because they're useful. Uh, the most important thing about that is you know, it's going to take months and that can be politicized over the course of next summer. However, the way that IRC 280E is written, it says in the tax year. So provided that it becomes effective in 2024, all that lobbying dollars, like they're gonna be spending their money because they don't have to pay Uncle Sam until after the fact, uh, how it would be if they weren't taxed on gross profits or were taxed like the hemp providers. And so I could see the most lobbying money from cannabis ever spent on both sides, on hemp and also on cannabis, being spent to get something that works. But then if it does work and Schedule 3 is a lot of land, it moots those uh, you know, constitutional challenges to the arbitrariness of the Schedule 1. It then also provides guidance for all the laboratories of democracy for like, here's the standard to get an exemption from the Attorney General or to register with the Attorney General for distributing a Schedule 3 controlled substance so that you then can access banking, you can access uh, uh, the capital markets, and what you are doing is literally not a crime for the first time ever in, in your career in the industry. You know, you mentioned um, the tax code, 280E, um, and I, I, I wonder from another kind of federal topic, you know, if we don't see some sort of CSA movement, um, we instead have these these alternative, you know, bills going through the House and Congress right now um, regarding 280E, regarding access to inst institutional banking and capital. Um, do those, you know, keep going on if we see the rescheduling effort kind of fail or falter? Do you think those succeed? Is that still kind of a contingent? Is that going to be, you know, again, a, re a running point for this 2024 election? I mean, Nikki Haley, right? She's the one that introduced the States Act. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I'm not lucky enough to be born a billionaire or Kim Rivers. And so if I was, and I was running their companies, I would test all my product so that it's Delta 9 compliant, except for my vapes, because good luck with that. You know, you have to decarb the vape uh, before you can like, you know, actually sell it unless you want to make it Delta 8. And that's a different loophole that you don't have to do if you have a license to make the THC product. And, and I would say all my flower sales, I'm going to disallow from schedule, uh, I'm sorry, IRC 280 as that was, those were legal hemp transactions, according to the farm bill. Uh, and so uh, that's the, the type of aggressive stance that I would take. But like, uh, I really don't think that they're going to leave it how it is. I think something's going to change this year and they're going to make their case politically. Like if you wanna see no change, vote for this guy. If you want comprehensive medical cannabis nationwide, because I haven't mentioned this yet, uh, imagine that you go and you buy a, a THCA pre-roll in North Carolina or Tennessee, and then they don't let you smoke it inside, so you have to go outside, and you light it on fire, and now you're committing a crime. Um, actually, it depends on how big that pre-roll is because they're decrimmed, but they'll, they'll write you a ticket at least because you have contraband. Uh, no, you don't. It's just like 1995 in California. And so now you have a medical defense nationwide. It's like, no, I bought hemp. I bought an agricultural commodity. It became a medicine, which I might not have a prescription for while I was using it medicinally, by the way. And they'll try to plead out 
for minor infractions and, and use the, uh, the medicinal use defense. That's interesting. I, and I like, and I like that. I like that concept and I like the defense. And I also like what you said earlier, a little bit about, um, you know, the, the prognostication about how, how you sort of define a, a new category. But I, I think you got to take what we have. We have this distinction between hemp and marijuana. And if Schedule 3 will apply to the descheduled form, so you got hemp descheduled, THC, all of its compounds. You've got Schedule 3 on the marijuana side. Xavier, to your original question, the other pieces of legislation are all necessary, always necessary. In fact, you're going to need a policy card out, carve out regardless because I can't imagine that the so-called you know adult use dispensaries across the country are going to convert back to medical dispensaries, even if the laws in the states allow for it. So, so there's not that's that's not. You still need a carve out to even still a schedule question. Yeah, right. you, you still need trigger laws. There's these trigger laws in Illinois, and so if they change it in federal and schedule three and say oh, it's medicinal, my shop that I have a license to open up, I would use my leverage in Illinois to make it medicinal so it's compliant. And I would say, you guys are now out of compliance with the federal law. You now have to, Missouri's already ahead of the game. But Missouri's, but every you, dispensary's hybrid. Do you really think that a marijuana business can comply with the rigorous standards that it takes to be compliant with Schedule 3 supply chain and production requirements. If you do, I, I won't disagree with you for the sake of disagreeing. I just think it's a tall task. And I think it's going to cost a lot of money. It is. A lot of money that they, these it guys will. don't have. And, and and more importantly, I think That's it's right. a sophistication element. I, I The marijuana operators are more sophisticated than they've ever been. They produce excellent products. We know that. But at the end of the day, isn't it a sophistication of understanding? It's one thing to be compliant with some, you know, esoteric state regulatory framework. It's a whole other thing to get to be compliant with seven hundred thousand pages. That's an exaggeration, of course. But of, of FDA guidelines that would govern a Schedule Three business, is it not? Oh no, you're absolutely right. I think consolidation will happen, like hard. But it, when you're talking, if you're going to make this thing a medicine. Uh, and you're going to recognize it as medicine as opposed to an agricultural commodity. So if they're going to move it there, they have to regulate it, right? Now, if they want to regulate it like it's tobacco, but they aren't ready for that yet. Uh, you know, I, I think that if the Republicans that are voting in most houses understood how the plant worked and that THCA hemp is weed, it's just dispensary grade weed that has not decarboxylated yet, uh, they would be shocked and they would have to go pray to Jesus immediately to, to get guidance on how to like, you know, doom or shame the, 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 the evil people. But uh, it, if they're going to move it to being a medicine, it's going to have to either be a medicine or they're going to have to create their own supply chain to kind of start the spinoff process because the attorney general is allowed to exempt people from registering as a schedule three manufacturer if they think that they can satisfy all the elements that are in the Controlled Substances Act under, uh, I don't think it's 811. Uh, it may still be actually, no, it's 823 or the Controlled Substances Act. And so the attorney general can say like, you don't need to register. And so maybe they'll give us a punch list of what it means to run a dispensary, of what it means to run a grow and to do extraction. Uh, and if they can give us those rules and those rules are outside of the shit that they have to put up with if they're just doing um, coating with Tylenol, 
great. Well, well, so, but I, I sense your perhaps faith in the federal government to actually do their job, its job, in the sense of creating rules. And, and I'm just not one of the, I, I don't, I don't believe the federal government is capable or competent to create rules in really any subject because they either get mired in the political debate or they get mired in the, the technicalities. And either way, you don't have something that that's practical in scope. And furthermore, it usually takes them, you know, 10 to 15 years to come out with something like that. So Xavier, to your point earlier, I believe the States Act is an elegant solution. And what I like about the States Act is it doesn't requirement require on its face the federal government to create rules. But rather, it says, okay, if a state meets these minimum robust regulatory requirement thresholds and they tender that state program to the federal government for approval, sort of like the Farm Bill, like where the USDA approves the state program, then what you're doing in that state's not a violation of the Controlled Substances Act any longer. Important, because that eliminates 280E, doesn't allow for interstate commerce per se, but guess what? I don't think this industry is ready for interstate commerce because the multi-state operators have doubled down on creating a supply chain state by state by state because they've had to. So why not allow them to avail themselves of that infrastructure and that inefficiency in the market, which is intrastate commerce versus interstate commerce, and make and, and relax the 280E requirement? I mean, I can't think of a more elegant and better solution than 280E because I don't believe that federal legalization can work. I don't know if we need it, and I don't think it works because I don't trust or believe the federal government can do its job there. And if it does, it'll do it very poorly and to the detriment of the business owners. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you with the because I don't know who's writing this shit. And so, like, I'd, I'd like to know who's writing it and, and start telling them that's dumb. You know what you should do with like what Bob just said, because like that's really what I'm talking about is if we would get uh, you look at what the industry is doing, say, OK, but let's make it pure. Let's make the rules be standard. So we are going to wet our beaks to United States government. And and you just like the, the farm bill did with hemp. It's like, here's the rules. Now, again, they were able to drive a dump truck through with the loopholes on those rules. But they said, here's the rules. And getting compliance with this, you can go beyond it, but getting compliance with this. And so I'm hopeful that the schedule three, it's 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 kind of like a schedule three plus or something in the sense that it is treated uniquely from any other schedule three uh, substance that's out there. Because the problem that I have with the States Act is that it will never pass. And so like they might be able to accomplish something similar uh, through the executive uh, authority granted under the Controlled Substances Act that they may never be able to get even a, a, they can't even bring safe banking to the floor of the Senate. Have they had a safe banking vote on the floor of the Senate yet? I don't think they have, you know? Um, so if they can't even get that to be voted on the Senate, maybe the only way we can restructure this is through uh, the administrative rulemaking process. The executive has the ability and the authority to call for. So, so, so they, they did, they did, they did actually get safe banking, I believe, through the Senate, but that's because the political composition had changed, right? So you had um, you had it come through the Senate, but now the House won't schedule it. And meanwhile, the House it went through the House like, uh. five or six times. But but you know, typical Washington inefficiency. But but before we move on, I, I just wanted to say, and I'd love to get your perspective too, Xavier. Where, where the heck does the government put 
where does the government get its cut? What's the cost, the federal government? What's the cost of doing business if the federal government legalizes cannabis? Because right now, marijuana, that, that is, right now, the cut is big. 280E. Yeah. Right? I'm going to charge you more in your taxes because that's the cost of selling something that's federally illegal. Yeah. And where do you move that to? Well, we've discussed that, right? It's like, the, yeah, the federal government's not going to give up that revenue stream and so it probably moves into a licensing and registration scheme i mean maybe but that's a, a terrible answer oh, of course. you don't want the federal government licensing well, no, of course, and doing anything but, here. but if they're going to be getting their paws on it i mean that's that's going to be how they're going to go about doing it you know maybe it's even a product registration scheme right where it's not like a business entity licensing scheme but instead you have product SKUs or you know kind of mass-produced brands and things that are registered with the government in that regard. I mean, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a big question. But, but what if it's as simple as... You know how they get it for alcohol? You know how they, they, have special tax. You know how they tax yeah, alcohol? They special tax structure. They, they tax alcohol by uh, the strength of the alcohol. And so they standardize all the alcohol products for like a gallon. And that's why beer's taxed lower than whiskey. And so, why don't they do that? Right, based on the potency. Think that, that, I think that's and why then they I use like that money. <laughs> they use that money to it's fund. More expensive. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, but no, it's interesting. But you they, say that. they use the money then to do the uh, administration and so and the regulation of it. So like it, it pays for itself. And so if they're going to create this new bureaucracy, at least they have this tax that's layered on there to pay for. Right, it. and businesses. And then and it also kind of it, it primes it up to be moved then from Schedule Three out of the schedules because like they would have to they would literally need to amend the controlled substances act to strike the provision of section 811 that says that we have to be in compliance with international treaties. Yeah. And I think the, uh, I've been looking a little bit at TTB regulations lately and I do think that, you know, the tax scheme they have established there for alcohol is, or could be, you know, a fairly elegant solution to taxing cannabis. Um, but I think it maybe is by, you know, maybe a product form, I think the concentration piece is interesting. So you get, you know, we were talking about vape pens earlier. You get a vape pen that's like 98% THC that's being taxed at this enormously high rate compared to, you know, an edible with a much less THC. Flower. I think, right. Well, yeah. Or edibles, yeah. Or edibles, yeah. Um, well, listen, we've spent a lot of time focusing on the federal government. Um, I like to pivot a little bit to just talking about state governments. Um, you know, 2024 was, or 2023, sorry, um, did see some movement when it came to. Um, new marijuana markets, whether they're medical or recreational. And actually, just two days ago, the first of the year, Washington and Colorado also celebrated 10 years um, with adult use uh, markets in place. And so, um, you know, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on some of the hot markets going into 2024. Of course, we still have New York is embroiled in lawsuits. Uh, a new one, even most recently, um, still ca uh, challenging constitutionality and the way that the OCB or the CCB there has actually rolled out um, the entire program, right? The licensing scheme itself. Um, and then, you know, we've got potentially new markets coming online with South Dakota and Wisconsin looking at medical marijuana measures. Um, Pennsylvania, Florida, Hawaii, looking at rec. Um, so just kind of interested to hear your general thoughts on, you know, state markets um, and, and maybe where, you know, operators and business owners could look to to focus opportunities and efforts, you know, in the new year. Tom, what, what's the holdup with some of these states from your perspective, especially on the licensing side of things and getting getting these businesses licensed? What's the holdup with, for example, Pennsylvania from just going, you know, outright, tax it and set the, you know, set a, an age limit. 
um, or, or the what 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 additional data or the like do we need, or is it really just mired in, in political BS? In Pennsylvania, 100% is mild in political BS because unlike my state of Illinois, which has a supermajority for liberals, or Minnesota, which passed by one vote in the Senate, legalizing it. It was a strict party vote and they had a one vote majority in the Senate, and that's how Minnesota legalized it. If the Republicans knew that THCA hemp flower was weed, do you think they'd let that stand? Really? I mean, and so that's... That's really why Pennsylvania hasn't. Wisconsin is the same thing. Wisconsin's a swing state the other way. But the Republicans have gerrymandered the heck out of it so that they will always have a 51% edge in both of the legislative houses. And, and so that has resulted in Supreme Court challenges in Wisconsin that may, may, may come up. But this is a, an extremely politicized plant for no good reason at all except for maybe like law enforcement's impact on uh, our nation's political climate. You know, cops have kids, they have cop dogs, they're arresting bad guys. You need to be able to smell if something bad's going down. We can't, we can't allow this. And then, or maybe like dad owns a prison, heads on beds, you know, it's good for the stock price. And so between those two things, uh, and then, uh, to a certain extent, we could also like throw Indiana under the bus, pharmaceutical companies, but cannabis is off patent, has been off patent now for a few years. They, they took that, HHS took that patent out about cannabinoids uh, in the late 90s. And so it's off patent. That's one of the reasons I'm hopeful that uh, we'll see over-the-counter medical marijuana by 2025. That's, that's a good prediction. And, you know, Xavier, to your question about the different states, I mean, I, I, I'm not excited about new states coming online because it's the big states that really have to set the tone. I mean, I've looked at Los Angeles as Los Angeles should be the model for the world on how you do retail cannabis distribution. It is prime time for that in every possible way. Shout out to Coach Prime, by the way, for, for a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, there's that. New York, New Jersey. I mean, these states, New Jersey of New York, New Jersey and California – to your point, Tom, it's easy to get a license there, but they might have it figured out the best how to actually move forward and get things rolling. Um, why is it? Well, they still have a residency requirement in New Jersey, so we'll see about that. Well, the residency requirement. It's easier to get around. It's it's not. It's for a minority it's a small, position. No, it's yes. a small percentage. Yeah. yeah. And then those those get struck and stricken down uh, time and again. It seems like, but New York, California, these states have to get out of their own way. Illinois, get out of your own way, right? It's it's understand that yeah. you've got a population of people willing to purchase things. You've got data that suggests that the state tax dollars benefit uh, the state and, 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 and it doesn't cause teen use rates to go up or the like. It is a no-brainer to just let it go and to become a model for that. But there's just this infighting and there's this resistance politically, even at the local level, to do so. So so I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say except to say that I'd look at those states to, and, and, and work in those states to sort of right the ship, so to speak, because they're huge, huge markets. And at some point or another, economics is going to dictate that they get it right. And just one note on the THCA flower thing, I do think that if a Republican in state X or Y realized that THC flower is the exact same thing in a certain respect, or at least from the, the feeling you get uh, of, of, of a marijuana flower, I do think that they're going to go to bat for that flower. And I'll tell you why. Jobs, dollars, economic impact. They're not going to let the Biden. I read state 
Republican, no matter how conservative he or she may be, is not going to do something because a Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. told them to do something or a Democrat majority. That's here hilarious. Told them to do something. I, I believe that they're but going it's to stand the, up for It's jobs. the identical product. I mean, like it's a take. Imagine two pre-rolls of dank wheat. All right. One, say buy at a dispensary with a license. The other one, get it at a gas station and call it THCA hemp. It's the same thing. And so you think, I mean, that's how we know we can't communicate as a nation. If we could politicize the same thing through branding and dogma. No, you, you, you nailed it, man. You nailed it. It's exactly right. Weed it's is exactly right. legal. You know? <laughs> so um, at one point in the conversation, somebody's... It's, it's completely legal unless you light right. it on fire. Or it happens you know? to, you know, get some sunlight degradation, a little heat. Yeah. Whoops. Oops, oops. Well, actually, something I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, Thomas, is is you know the comparison of gas chromatography testing with liquid chromatography testing um i'm i'm, I'm sure you know this but maybe you don't you know law enforcement yeah. tends to use what's well, gas chromatography gas chromatography what it does is it converts right. of course thca into thc um so any any thca right. flower tested by law enforcement out in the field is going to pop regardless of whether or not it's been smoked, whether Correct. or not it's been you know, decarboxylated naturally. Um, but then, of course, the hemp industry is out here, and they love liquid chromatography, which does allow you to differentiate between THCA and Delta-9. Um, so I'm wondering if you think that and, maybe— And legally, sh you should be required to differentiate between the two because the law doesn't talk about it. Currently, Unless yes. Unless it says total THC. That is correct. That is no, that you, it doesn't. It doesn't say total THC. Well, no, no, I'm, I'm the just saying if the law does. Says Delta 9. No, I know. I know what the federal law is. Yeah, there's yeah. no ambiguity in the law. No, there's not. There, but then the rules have the force of law, which creates an ambiguity because the rules of the force of law and the rules for the United States Department of Agriculture's testing for cannabis, I'm sorry, hemp, uh, uh, for THC compliance is no more than 30 days before harvest. Will you test this area? And if it tests a particular amount, then you can blend the plant, which is hilarious. And so uh, you can beat that test as the vast majority of THC accumulates in the last four weeks of flower. Uh, and, and then it's already a compliant product, which just goes to no licensed retailer of the product would dare use the THC potency test 30 days before harvest to advertise its product. Uh, and you're right about the gas chromatography versus the liquid uh, chromatography. Uh, the, uh, the, one of them blows it up and like lights it on fire right. and it makes it all hot. And the other one doesn't. But uh, that's one of the reasons where I'm like, well, if we just didn't put the word Delta 9 in there and said THC uh, and then give it 1%, you can grow all the hemp genetics that are uh, you know, CBD related. But maybe it's time for a, a better definitional, because then that's just an agricultural commodity, even though people might need that uh, horticultural product medicinally for medicinal purposes. So if you want to like control the heavy metals, you want to control the pesticides, the mold content in it, wouldn't it be nice if there was a federal rule yeah, that said helps the farmers. this is medical cannabinoids? Yeah, and it helps the farmers. I don't, I don't and hate... the farmers know what side they're on. I don't hate freedom that much. Jeez. Uh, um, it's much better freedom now. And so like that, breaking the law. than it was 20 years ago, but it was just breaking the law. But, you know, if you're going to call this thing a medicine and it's, and it is, I mean, the reason why it's gotten this far is because it's medicinal. You should, you should, you know, at least respect the patients enough to give them, uh, um, confidence 
and what it is that they're buying. Well, listen, I think that um, I think that we can confidently call 2024 the year of THCA flower. Um, and we'll have to see exactly how this all shakes out because I think it's going to be, you know, a flashpoint for state markets, for the federal le- legislation and everything. Bottom line on all this stuff, and, and Tom, thank you for joining us, is that there are a million different ways to so-called skin this cat, right? And you just got to be creative and you got to think about it. But the problem, as I see it, and this is not to open up a new topic because we do have to wrap things up here, but the problem, as I see it, <laughs> is I don't believe that the lobbyists and the policy advisors that are driving this discussion in Washington, D.C. are heard or listened to or taken seriously. I know those things to be somewhat pretty pretty sound facts. But more importantly, they, uh, they don't seem to understand that there are more options than the one current box. And those options already exist in the law. We don't have to create something brand new. Well said. That's true. That's true. Tom? Um, want to give you an opportunity, you know, you've mentioned your other podcast a few times, shout out, you know, anyone that you'd like to, um, I don't know, thank or where folks can find you if they want to get a hold of you. Um, how's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me is probably online at cannabisindustrylawyer.com. Uh, the name of my consulting firm is collateral base. And then our podcast is cannabis legalization news primarily on YouTube. So if you want to like get a whole bunch of YouTubes about, uh, nerdy, legal crap in the cannabis space cannabis legalization news is that youtube channel for you and then you know if i can help anybody out i'll try or at least say i can't do that well i appreciate that definitely appreciate the uh the helping hand approach it's been a pleasure having you on today um looking forward to bob joining your podcast at the start of february um and yeah thanks for joining us today tom my pleasure Thanks for joining us for another enlightening conversation. If you liked what you heard, hit that subscribe button to get all future episodes fresh out of the studio. Suggestions for topics or guests for the show, please send them to hello at bobhoban.com. And as always, thanks to Benzinga for powering the Hoban Minute.